0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, it's breakfast somewhere. So, eat up. Welcome to Breakfast with Vinny. Food for Thought. Okay. So, today, um, today's guest is an acclaimed music historian, a jazz critic, an author, musician, and all-around musicologist. He's authored 11 books. Uh, the most recent being "Music: A Subversive History," which I'm in the process of reading at this very moment. It's an amazing, amazing book. Um, and most recently, was featured prominently in the media uh, regarding an article that he authored called "Is Old Music Killing New Music?" So, uh, speaking of food for thought, uh, please welcome Ted Gioia. Ted, welcome. hi, Danny. Thanks for having me as your guest. Thanks for for being on the show, Ted. So man, oh man, this is this is amazing. Um, there's just there's just no no shortage of of brain food here. Uh, I've got to tell you that this book is is just is so enthralling, um, just in its scope alone. That that it, I mean, uh, you know, without giving <clears throat> too much of it away, I would definitely recommend anybody who has an interest in the sort of all encompassing you know, a uh, big picture of music, please have a read at it. Um, and, and, and you've also, you're also involved in a, a jazz studies uh, program at Stanford. Is that right? Um,
1: in the past, I helped set up a program some years ago, mm-hmm. uh, but I haven't been teaching for a while. Most of my teaching now is just done via writing, but yes, I do. I did teach at Stanford uh, and um, that was an extraordinary experience. Yeah, uh, I, I I benefited from. I'm sure you know this too. Sometimes, as a teacher, uh, you learn things by uh, being forced to to deal with students. You find that there are a lot of things you you know how to do, and you're not, and you have by articulating them, you understand them more more clearly yourself.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the limited amount of teaching that I've done, I've I found that I found, I mean, <clears throat> that I've had to sort of. Um, you know, not only think about that and revisit what it is that I'm trying to impart, but how to articulate it, and uh, and which which ties into the whole process of it. So so absolutely, it 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 causes you to do that. And I think I think some people definitely have a gift at that, um, just naturally, you know. Um, but 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 it can be developed too. It's 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 one of those things. And and um, <clears throat> the whole educational thing now is is so there's so much of it going on. Uh, there's definitely not, not a lack of, of information out there. Um, But, but, you know, honestly, we were talking, you know, um, uh, not long ago on the phone and, um, and it was interesting because our conversation just immediately had wings. And, you know, I remember telling you, I said, "We, we have to save this for the show because there's so much to talk about. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because just in your book, like we're talking about the origins of music and, you know, what gets accepted and touted in society? Um, I mean, for that matter, what about breakdancing? I mean, shouldn't that be an Olympic-level sport? Or what about parkour? Uh, these are death-defying acts, you know, and and they arise from people's desire uh, to just do them, to be adventurous and, and daring and explore. And it's amazing just what, you know, the things that become legitimized later <clears throat> and then, and then filtered or sanitized where they actually come from, and uh, you know I, I often wonder about about those things. And and you know, like I was just saying, like parkour, for example. I mean, or or, or just people playing in the street, you know, um, that that I see. There was there was I remember um, <clears throat> there was a um, a group uh, in the Congo, I think. And they 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 fashioned all their instruments out of these sort of recycled parts. And the music that they came up with was amazing, you know, and, um, and, and what, what I also found equally interesting was that, you know, we would hear that over here on this side of the pond and we think, thinking oh yeah, that's really original and, and, in which it is, and which it's very unique. But then <clears throat> I think, um, someone was asking, uh, one of the people in this particular group about, um, in anything that, that that might might have influenced them and and the answer was James Brown so you know it was kind of like it went over there and got it came back over here and this kind of cyclical thing you know so which which is it was uh, you know I think a, a lot of what you talk about you know so
1: well everything comes full circle and you're right it's remarkable what becomes legitimized and what doesn't you know we were talking a little earlier about jazz education. And you made the comment that there's a lot of jazz education materials out there and yeah. there really are but when i was coming up and maybe this dates me a little bit I'm right was there with you. Up, it was very little you know i grew up in la i was trying to learn how to play jazz when i was a teenager and i never went to a school that had a jazz program or even a jazz class, you know, and I spent many years in advanced education at some really fine institutions. Uh, none of them had any jazz offerings. I was the only good method book I could find back when I was a teenager was this four volume work by John Mahegan called uh, on jazz improvisation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even that was a little bit clumsy and cumbersome. But there, there was no things like YouTube videos Occasionally, you'd get your hands on a transcribed solo, and uh, that was remarkable to be able to see a trans. I remember when the Charlie Parker Omni book came out, which had all these Charlie Parker transcribed solos. This was like, this was extraordinary. And then I remember I went to college, it's the early 1970s, and my sophomore year, one of the students from New York, I mean, I was at Stanford, so we're on the West Coast, we're sort of cut off from what's happening back east, but one of my friends from New York, had a copy of the real book. <laughs> and he showed me the real book. I my eyes went so wide. <laughs> Something like this even exists. Right, right, right. And the funny thing is now we've come full circle. People laugh at the real book or if you use fake books or these, they, 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 they complain about these students that have learned too much at school and they're too well-trained. But in a way, I'm envious because when I was coming up, Jazz was not legitimate. A lot of the music I love wasn't considered legitimate, would never be taught at a school. And obviously there are downsides when things become too academic, but I think I'm grateful for the most part that, that these things now are taken seriously. And if you do want to learn, there are resources out there. Because Man, not long ago, there was nothing.
0: Yeah, I I know. And, and, you know, you're talking about these things. I know because I'm, I'm, you know, the same sort of, um, era and age bracket. I mean, you and I are, are in that similar sort of, uh, you know, bracket. So, so he said, John Mahegan, I'm like, Oh yeah, I remember that, you know, and, uh, and the real book and all of those things. And, and, and the same for me when I, when I was coming up, it was like, well, you know, I had to transcribe things myself. And if I would go to see people play, it was, I had to either retain it or, or not, you know, and just try to use my imagination and figure it out. And I wonder, you know, if, if that sort of, uh, having to work that hard at it actually um you know has a beneficial effect that that may or may not be missing today, and it's hard to say because there is m- much more material that's easily available in forms that didn't exist back then, and you know it's easy to say, well, look, it's all out there uh you know in in front of you and you're being spoon fed but but at the same time uh you know as a result of that, I see a lot of of young players today coming up that that the bar has just raised you know in at, at certain levels of of uh of at school levels that that you know didn't exist before and they're just sort of you know regardless of how easy the information is to obtain they still have to apply themselves so so you know they're the level seems to have raised so it's kind of a tough argument to, to pose you know in that sense not for the sake of our argument but you know what i'm saying it's like um you know, having to engage your imagination and, and versus sort of uh, just having it all there right in front of you, you know? And, and and you know, on the other hand, you know, uh, I've also noticed a lot of homogeneity that's happened as a result of that as well. So,
1: you know. No, you could, I mean, we may have gone from one extreme to another, you know, but... Um, yeah, yeah. there, there, was, there and I like to tell myself that if I had had access to the tools we had now, I would have learned faster. Mm-hmm. But there was something you learned at a deep level. Mm-hmm. If you had to do it the way we did, I mean, because the way you described it, I mean, I used to go out to the club and I would, I would try to sit right behind the piano player. So I actually, want, I'm sure you were probably in by the drummer. You know, you're trying to, you, you, you it's like drinking from a fire hose because it's coming out so fast.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Uh, and <laughs> but and it was a different way of learning. But you 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 picked up things at a deep level doing it in that kind of way. So I I don't know which is better, but at times I am a little envious. And when people complain uh, about, you know, these young jazz students who learned this, that from a method book and from a video, I I think, wow, I would have loved, I would have loved to have that method book and video. Yeah, no, I know,
0: I know, I know exactly what you mean. I mean, I did, did what you, what you, exactly what you said. You know, I remember uh, once I had to do this, uh, a clinic, um overseas and 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 I had to play before the late great Tony Williams who was my hero you know so um as it turned out um he started playing and it was in Scotland actually and we we all took this van over to the the um the auditorium and tony was in really a, a great mood he was he was telling jokes and you know i remember that well and so anyway we got there and you know uh I, I played and and a bunch of us played and and then tony came on and of course you know you, you can just imagine when he started playing and he, he just he played for about 45 minutes nonstop, and and we were just all just standing there shaking our heads but <clears throat> what happened was i was standing off to the side of the stage and then i suddenly <laughs> i suddenly just went down and belly crawled across the stage, right behind his riser, right behind him. And then a friend of mine who was also on the same bill called Keith LePlanc, he did the same thing. So the next thing you know, we're both there on our stomachs looking up at Tony right behind him. I mean, if he would have swished his head and sweat, it would have fell, fell on us. And we were watching just the entire thing and he played and played and played nonstop. And then he stopped and he turned around and, and looked motion toward his tech. And he said, and the tech ran over, you know, le- leaving us alone. And uh, he said, how long did I play? And the tech said about 45 minutes. And He said, okay. And he tiled himself off. Now it was question time. So somehow we still, we still went unnoticed you know, as he got up to do you know, his sort of question and answer thing. Cut to months later. I got this story secondhand even though I'd spoke to Tony on the phone several times. Um he, he what ha- what happened was I found out from one of the other people that he, he he was he was watching a VHS of this thing at home and as he's watching it apparently he said to his wife Wait a minute, could you pause pause that tape right there? Rewind it. What, what is that motion? It's somebody crawling across. What, what, they, it's Vinny. What is he doing? I was caught red-handed, belly crawling across the floor. Yeah, you didn't think it was going to be on film. But, you know. I didn't. But, you know, hey it happened. So yeah, well. yeah right. And, and, uh, but, but, you know, it's, it's interesting too, because now we have, we can document so many things and, um, and, and, you know, it's like, again, for me, I see a, a sort of, uh, you know, pros and cons to it where, all this information is available, and this, that, and the other thing. On the other hand, it becomes like, well, I have to post all the time, and uh, you know, and, and 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 then there's that danger of homogeneity of everybody sort of jumping on the same bandwagon. Um, but but one thing is is I think that you know we could sort of trace, at least at a certain point in history, uh, since this started happening, it it actually began documenting. Things in a way that can be recovered easily on social media or whatever it is. I mean, you know, like how could you, like, without chronicling history well? How how is it possible, for example, to really know, like, to really really know who who played the very first boogaloo beat, for example? Just just yeah. putting that out there. Like, I remember, like, we could say, okay, Clyde Stubblefield, J. Bo Starks, and but I remember once a record that Papa Joe Jones put out. He he did a, you know this record, it was called The Drums. And so he put that record out and he chronicled his history where, you know, he was citing his travels and seeing people on the way that influenced him that, you know, maybe just were on a first name basis, like with some weird nickname, like a, you know, a Mr. Curly or something. And, you know, he, you know, they, they probably, they, you know, perhaps they went into the, the vast unknown of society unheard of um, except for Papa Joe telling us of them and, and what they did that we, we, me, we may have otherwise never realized, you know, Um, or people that were around at the time of of Louis Armstrong and and the people that, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's. Absolutely. No, and I'm, I'm, my next book I'm going to be writing
1: about this about where, you know, where does musical innovation come from? This is a, an issue of great interest to me and I've spent Mm -hmm. decades trying to grasp it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and one of the things I've seen is that when these innovations come out, they're not recognized initially as innovations. Sometimes they're scandals. Sometimes they're controversy. Sometimes people just say, well, they're doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. And because of that, as a music historian, I've seen that the origin of almost every major innovation is surrounded by mystery. And I'll just give you a few examples. We now believe the first jazz musician is someone named Buddy Bolden. But there's no recording. There's absolutely no recording. If you go to the origin of the blues, uh, there's a fellow named W.C. Handy who's called the father of the blues, but he'll tell you that he first heard it at a train station in I.R., Mississippi, where he heard someone playing the blues on a guitar. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't even know the name of that person. And I could go example after example, and and people will tell me, well, Ted, that's just because these are popular forms of music. And I said, no, if you got a room full of experts on classical music Mm -hmm. and asked them who invented the symphony, who invented the fugue, who invented the sonata, just wait and watch the argument start. Because even in the most theoretically respectable kinds of music, no one can agree on these things because no one was documenting it no one was paying attention and usually it was a scandal even something as simple as polyphony you know when when they started singing multiple parts of counterpoint in church this was a scandal palestrina the composer had to, had to go to the vatican and defend polyphony so i mean they're they're and, and if you go back even further chant you would think well, what could be offensive about gregorian chant right but the, the people that invent, Saint Benedict had people threaten his life. He invented a, the Benedictine chant, and the, and here's the, I'll just give one more example. Yeah, yeah. The guy who invented musical notation, Guido d'Arezzo, he was the first person to figure out how to write down music. Mm-hmm. People wow. tried to kill him, and and I know when I tell people that, they say, "Oh, that can't be true, Ted." What could be so threatening about music notation? I said, no, "You have to understand." before people could write down music if you wanted to learn a song you had to go to the choir master you had to go to a person they were very powerful because they knew the music and if you wrote it down people didn't need them anymore okay. so you were you were threatening people's livelihoods
0: right right do threatening- just writing
1: down music and this this is and i've been able to trace this going back 5000 years
0: that's incredible
1: every new style of music has led to controversy. And usually the history is effaced. I'll give one last example. The first singer-songwriter is uh, named Enhwadana. It's not a name that's well-known, but this is ancient Mesopotamia. We're going back 5,000 years. She wrote the first songs that actually survived that we can attribute to an individual. But the the the... the, the stone on which this thing is inscribed has been broken and defaced because someone wanted to destroy that music. Now who knows what was going on? Yeah. But as far back as you can trace. Yeah. When something new happened in the music world, someone else tried to erase.
0: Just resistance, resistance, resistance constantly. But I mean, that's, that's not only in music, but, but to, to, to not get too too tangential here. Um, yeah, that reminds me. wasn't Wasn't there a book written about that very thing, um, the lexicon of musical invective? Oh, Slonetzky. Yeah, no, there Yeah, yeah, no.
1: And if you go, you know, for example, I like to go back to the first reviews. And if you go back to Bach, it's hard to find mu, mu, uh, music reviews. You know, there are a few comments where people say this is dangerous. He's yeah. pushing the envelope we got to stop it. But by the time you get to Beethoven, it's all documented in the press. You know, Beethoven debuts his third symphony. People attacked him immediately. You know, someone jumped up in the audience and and screamed an insult in the middle of the performance. So this is is the way innovation is always treated. Uh, Most of the time, the history is hidden from us. But when you can get the details, and I've spent a lot of my life trying to piece together these details... Uh, the, the story is always one of resistance and that's that probably hasn't changed today. Sad to say, you
0: know, no, it doesn't seem like it has at all. So, so if we think we're, you know, unique at that, in that regard, in this point of history, we're, we're obviously sadly mistaken, you know, uh, oh, and, absolutely. And, and then that's what history teaches us. Uh, you know, I mean, that's, that's incredible. I think, you know, it's, it's amazing that all of these things are viewed as threats to either some kind of hierarchy or any number of things that, that, that it, they're, they're birthed in such a, a painful manner, you know. Um, I remember, you know, it was, well, okay, for, I mean, you're, you're talking about also, uh, you know, especially in your book here where things that, that are integrated into society and cleansed and sanitized um for that matter are initially considered vulgar or shocking and and i mean do you do you think that um that the eventual integration um and acceptance into society uh of what was initially considered vulgar and shocking can be compared to like the normalization of steadily increasing vulgarities in general like you know just 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 other things, do you think, and and do you think that the music directly contributes it to it or causes it, or as a result of it? I mean, those vulgarities could could be, or they could include the acceptance of violence and uh, general erosion of ethics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know.
1: Well, I I like to ask the question: Is there a music so extreme it can't be assimilated? And some people would say, well, look at some of this gangster rap or hip-hop. But I'll tell you, in the last few years, the Smithsonian is, is now putting together the Smithsonian Collection of Hip-Hop. Mm-hmm. And they've gathered 50 scholars of hip-hop to help them create a canonical collection. Uh, the Library of Congress is doing this. Mm-hmm. There's a registry of, of, of uh, cherished American recordings. It's the National Registry of Recorded Sound. Uh, they've taken, you know, straight out of Compton is now in that. That was a, an album the FBI tried to to shut down when it came out. And I think that 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 music always starts by shaking things up, and yeah. people want want the music to shake things up. I think that's that's uh, uh, part of what people want from music is they want uh, some disruptive experience that expands their horizons. And, uh, but it, it changes and we forget and we shouldn't forget. You know, for example, I tell people who know about jazz and they say, well, jazz is now taught at Juilliard, There's jazz at Lincoln Center, There's jazz is taught at Harvard. And I said, well, you need to remember the first jazz song we know about that Buddy Bolden did was called Funky Butt. <laughs> and if I sang you the lyrics, it would be shocking. If people used to sing that song in New Orleans, the police would arrest them. And the club where Buddy Bolden played, if we can believe Jelly Roll Morton, he said that there would be several murders would take place per night at that club. Now, I assume Jelly Roll was exaggerated. But even if you tone it down a little, <laughs> well, no, well, let me ask you, then you've lived through this. let us I mean, you, you 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 work very closely with Frank Sam? Yeah. Who is now a venerated composer? Yeah, but he, you have to—I mean, I'm sure you could tell me
0: chapter and verse. He shook things up when he came to town, did he not? Yes, he did. He definitely did. So, I mean, in a way, that can answer a lot of my questions, but in another way, it's—it still leaves some some questions unanswered. I, but he—he he definitely did. And I mean, you know, even myself as as a as a young kid—I mean, in the seventh grade listening to mothers of invention and, and, uh, I was sort of, you know, I, 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 appreciated the eclectic music, the musical part of it as well as the sort of built in satire that was hilarious to me. Um, you know, and, and sort of, not just a set satirical part of it, but, but, you know, the anti-establishment there was a lot of things built into it societally, but, um, you know, definitely- I mean, I had those albums,
1: and I felt like yeah. I had some sort of contraband. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I had these. I remember in high school, I got these Mothers of Invention albums.
0: Yeah, and was like, "Wow,
1: this is gotta hide these from my parents." You know? Oh yeah, is, yeah. Absolutely. This is this is some extreme stuff. And but that's and 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 the, and the the funny thing was, I think it took a long time for people to realize that Frank was an amazing musician. It's yeah. a ridiculously good band. Yeah. I mean, it was it was the rock band that had musicianship up there with the with the best jazz bands, and and you you know how rare that is. Absolutely, but but, but the part of the appeal, though, was Zappa seemed fearless, and he was willing to shake things up, and that what that was part of the appeal. And you can if you cleanse that too much,
0: you forget a lot of the meaning of
1: what was really going
0: on there. You're absolutely right, but but I think that that he also kind of did it from a perspective of commentary and that he his he was making commentary all the time of, of of some of the most absurd um you know the states of society i mean kind of in a way that george carlin or a comedian did um and 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 i think that he he didn't necessarily do that to separate himself whereas I see a lot of things uh, that are really kind of vulgar just for the sake of getting attention today, whereby people are doing it for that reason. And they, they may be absolving themselves of responsibility and it doesn't strike me as commentary as much. In other words, you know, I, I just see, see it being done for, you know what I mean? Like different, different perspective and stuff. And, and also, also the, the sort of things that, that, that I think that, that, um, like if there are things that are really, really, you know, steeped in a certain kind of vulgarity, um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to, to come across here like some sort of Puritan. I'm just trying to sort of, uh, you know, uh, just having a discussion about it. So, so, so that, that things that remain in the underbelly should remain in the underbelly, you know, and other things, like if they don't remain in the underbelly and they sort of come to the top and they, and they, and they, they become mainstream. And now there is no underbelly. It's mainstream. Then if, if, if part of the reason for bringing it there was for shock value then you've you've completely played all your shock value cards.
1: You see what I'm saying? Well, that doesn't, yeah, and, and you know you raise a good point because shocking, just for the sake of shocking, does not have much of an impact. Right. That has an impact of about five minutes.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, and you know it's it's sort of funny. Uh, my wife and I. We watch not a whole lot of TV or movies, but generally we'll spend maybe after dinner we'll get to go to forty-five minutes an hour. We'll watch a movie or a TV show, mm-hmm. and I've learned that I have a higher tolerance for things than my wife does. My wife, my wife is more easily offended. I'm sure this. I'm not the only household, <laughs> yeah. Where the, my wife is more easily offended than I am, but even I can be offended too. You know, I'll, there's some comedy routines. I'll listen to nothing again. this, I'm sorry. This is just, this is too, this is too far. Uh, but the key thing, and this is the thing, and sometimes though we'll be watching something and I would think my wife is would be offended, but she isn't. And it's because if it's smart or if it's humor and it's funny,
0: right. you'll cut people a lot of slack. Exactly.
1: You know, and, and, but the problem is, if it's just a- offensive for the sake of being offensive, I don't have much tolerance for that, but, and I don't think many people do. But this is, this is the difference. This is what separates an artist. Because you were talking about Frank Zappa. Mm-hmm. A lot of people were offended by what he did. right? But he was operating at such a high level that if you understood that, you, okay, well, now this is, this is, you pay attention to this, this is, this is something that is artistic, this is a cultural commentary.
0: Mm-hmm. It's not
1: just someone up there spouting off obscenities to stand out,
0: right? Exactly,
1: and yeah. that's where when you need to actually make distinctions. That's where I, that's the one time I feel good being a music critic, which is not the the most esteemed profession or vocation in the world. But you you do need at some point to make discretion uh, and distinctions, yeah, and and understand the difference between these things. So it's a profound when you get down to it. and The cultural impact between the two is quite profound as well.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean. <clears throat> you know being a part of that whole cultural commentary uh, delivering that through humor there's a lot of power in that um where it kind of it kind of sticks because it disarms people because people may not want to know the truth and so if you deliver it through humor then you know we, we can also learn to laugh at ourselves uh something that's obviously um lacking a bit of of today and i think i think it's affected comedians and affected all sorts of things Where and and you know frank was was uh very very anti-censorship as well so and and for good for good reason you know so um so there's that and 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 um yeah i'm not sure where what i'm where i'm going with this but but uh you know i just i mean do you having said all this i mean do you think that artists because I mean, you know, one of the basic things you you, you convey that I'm that I'm getting just from reading um, your book right now is is the, the immense power that music has. So so having said that, you know, don't do you think that artists have a, a responsibility to convey these sociological ideas in a way that does not condone or contribute um, to an ethical breakdown of society, especially a breakdown that doesn't have uh, an objective or a clear cut path towards betterment, you know? Cause, cause even, even with, with the satirical commentary, it was sort of like a way to have us look at ourselves to go, Oh yeah, we really are kind of absurd. Maybe we can learn from that. Or maybe we can laugh at it. Well, you see what, you see what I'm saying? Well, absolutely. And I'll make a few observations. No. Um,
1: first of all about the power of music. Mm. And I tell people music changes lives Music changes communities. Music changes the world. And they sometimes they push back, well, Ted, you're idealistic and you're naive. Maybe 50, 60 years ago, maybe back with Bob Dylan or Joan Baez, maybe back then music had a social impact, but not anymore. And I wrote an article, published it just a couple of weeks ago, in which I gave... 15, 20 different examples of music changing the world right now. Mm-hmm. And so I go into what's happening in Hong Kong with the protesters where they, uh, they use, uh, 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 they have all these anthems, these songs they sing. Or if you go to um, uh, the the Middle East or Mali, where musicians are being arrested and mm-hmm. going into refugee camps, mm-hmm. You go into, um, let me give you, I'll give you one example. Uh, In 2018, a rapper came out with a rap song in Thailand, critical of the government. And within a few days, it got tens of millions of views. And it was so popular that the Thai government had to come back with their own response. They actually released their own rap song. And everybody mocked and ridiculed the government's rap song because it wasn't very good. But the bottom line is music still has a, is a very powerful force. And even though you don't read about it in the newspapers, every day, somewhere in the world, a musician is getting arrested or is, is involved in, in, in trying to uh, stop an authoritarian government. And what people don't realize is music has been a very powerful force in expanding human freedom and personal autonomy since the beginning of time. And music doesn't get enough credit for that. Uh, even something as simple as a love song, you'd be amazed at how often love songs expanded human freedom. You know, with the troubadours, a thousand years ago, they sang about love, and it actually gave people more freedom to marry who they wanted, because there was a period where your parents decided who were you going to marry. And it was actually the music helped create a culture in which people had some sort of freedom. And control over their own lives so music has always had a power to expand human freedom and, and defy authoritarianism but as you mentioned this puts a responsibility on the shoulders of musicians mm-hmm. and musicians shouldn't view that responsibility frivolously. Being a musician I think is like a holy priesthood you I mean, you were you, you given these enormous powers you must have seen this a million times Vinny, in you're front of an audience. Yeah, you are. Your 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 drumming is having extraordinary impact. I, I've studied what drums do to pe- people's brains. People's brain waves match the drum rhythm. Right, right. It's called entrainment. Andrew Neer proved that in 1962 that if you you're listening to a drummer, it changes your 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 whole body. And and so musicians have responsibilities, and we in the music community have them. We shouldn't take those responsibilities frivolously or treat them as some sort of cavalier thing music is more powerful than we realize and that's a good thing but it can also be a bad thing
0: well yeah i mean i mean it's one of those things where if you just look at rhythm uh without compartmentalizing you know drums and rhythm in in any kind of way that's that's reductionistic i'm just just as an example um just of, of how that power is utilized You know, if you you take a sampled 808 bass drum and you hear that at a specific BPM going on for an hour or two or three at a rave, you know, where people are just getting completely messed up. And, you know, what I mean, that's like one use of it where it's just it's, you know, versus the power of rhythm whereby you even mentioned in your writing how an hour of a drum circle can actually increase your T cell count. So there's a huge difference in use, use case there. Oh. In, in no, the Dr. Bond... Barry Bittman proved this. Yeah. Participants in a drum
1: circle, their immune system is strengthened. Generally, you have to play at least 10 minutes. Now, what I found interesting is when I studied shamanistic rituals around the world, mm-hmm. the shaman is, is, is often in a ritual. Often they're trying to heal someone or it's a very important ritual. Mm-hmm. And, and they usually have a drum and they fall into a trance, but once again, it usually takes about 10 minutes. And, and I found this again and again, there seems to be this threshold that, and this is one of the sad things that our pop songs are generally just three minutes long, because I, I, all my research indicates that you need at least five to 10 minutes before people will really feel that physiological impact Right. That's why I'm not surprised that Hey Jude was such a successful Beatles song. One of the reasons why it was successful is it went more than seven minutes. Well, right. And that may seem ridiculous. uh, But I have studied the body chemistry. I've I've done deep research in the impact of music and especially rhythm on people's bodies. And it is an extraordinary impact. Mm -hmm. Um, And here's the interesting thing. It can be used for good or bad. I'll give you... A very interesting example came out of the historian Weisinger, Johann Weisinger. He's a historian about 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. He's studying the medieval period, and he said in the old days, you went to war as a knight. It was very individualistic. And that individualism ended, he said, when they brought drummers into the military. Really? Because all of a sudden everybody had to march to the same beat. Right, right. And and so this is the interesting thing. The drums in society are, on the one hand, a force of liberation. You get into a trance, a higher, a higher mind state. Right. An altered frame of being. Or the drums can be used to impose discipline.
0: Like a herding you dog. Know,
1: everybody walks in lockstep.
0: Yeah, sure, sure, sure.
1: And yeah. I often tell people, I say, show me how someone plays a snare drum, and I can tell you which of these two camps they fall into. Either they're
0: – Yeah.
1: They're, the drums is the path to liberation. Yeah. Freedom, you know something Or the drums is the path to total discipline. Right. And these right. are the are things in music history that people rarely understand but they're they have profound significance to uh, a culture. Well and sure. You, you tell me the music in a society and I can tell you by listening to it whether they're furthering authoritarianism or freedom. Yeah. You know, that
0: that may sound too blunt. Well, and maybe I'm exaggerating, but I'm only slightly exaggerating. There's no. a truth. I, I mean, this 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 could be a Pandora's box here. I mean, you've you've touching a a, a lot of stuff here, uh, just just in terms of just the drums. Like, I mean, I've had extensive rudimental training, which would could be said to have come from from war drumming. You know what I mean? Ooh, that, yeah, that- no, they send drummers
1: out into battle. And yeah, that, the drummer went in. They don't send poets, and they don't send the
0: sculptor, the sculptor or the painter into the. <laughs> Drummers went out the battlefield. Sure. But, but, but then um, but then it's sort of like, you know, I could use those rudiments and, and sort of um, w- what I think we've done in, in modern drumming is, is the drummer would use these rudiments, these military rudiments as scales, as the sort of drummer's kind of scale. And so we would then learn how to play them on a drum set and in, in recontextualize them so that you know those things don't necessarily have a meaning of well okay i can tell that you come from an authoritarian camp you see what i'm saying because Uh they've been recontextualized in a different way in two ways actually a kind of a two-step process where we've turned those things into sort of building blocks of a vocabulary and secondly recontextualizing them into grooves or whatever on a drum set you know so so that's that's Two different things right there you know because and 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 also i wonder on a on a larger level of how music how, how pop music for example um you know may have been usurped by big corporate today in order to cause the public or to influence the public to be in lockstep because it's just all part of a media kind of blitz that may be um, or, or it's, it's that, I mean, I mean, I'm not sure if this is the right thing to say that maybe for the purpose of that, but it could be partially for that. You know, you know what I mean? It's like, no, absolutely. And there's a, I mean, there were people, I mean, so I don't mean to cut you off dead, but there were people, uh, you know, back in the sixties that were, they're anti-establishment singing protest songs that maybe now they're you know they are anti-establishment and, and what they're they're doing is siding with the establishment. It, it seems to appear that way. Well, the, one
1: of the problems we have now,
0: and this is a deep issue, so there's no counterculture. Yeah.
1: We live in sort of a monolithic culture mm-hmm. and, and that's not healthy. And in the music world, there's a, there's a hypocrisy. And the hypocrisy is that if you, Interview someone who runs a major record label. Mm -hmm. What they tell you is, we're looking for some musicians that have a fresh, new sound that's different and exciting. But in fact, what they really want to sign is somebody who sounds just like what was a hit last week. Yeah, exactly. They'll tell you they want something fresh and new, but their behavior tells you something different. Mm -hmm. And and this has now become internalized in the algorithms because. If you go to Spotify or the play, I mean, these, these uh, playlists or the streaming platforms, they're determined by algorithm. And they will come to me every week and say, Ted, here are the new songs you're going to like. The algorithm has picked these. But the algorithm is merely a feedback loop. It can't tell me about anything different. It can just look at what I liked last week, last month, last year, and try to get me something similar. Right. And so the whole music industry now is acting like these algorithms. The music industry is becoming a feedback loop where everything's going by formula and imitating the past. Now that this is my belief that cannot last. Somebody's going to break us out of the circle because people, as I've told you, I believe people want music to expand their horizons. I think they want music to shake things up. Mm -hmm. I think they want music that sounds fresh and different. Mm -hmm. And there's now a divergence between people wanting that and what the music industry gives them, which is, We've reduced everything to a formula and we're going to repeat that formula ad nauseum. Mm -hmm. And even the radio stations all stick to their format. Mm -hmm. And because of that, if if I don't listen to a lot of country music, but when I listen to country music, the radio stations playing songs that sound pretty much the same as 20 years ago. And the pop songs have, I mean, I know people are going to kill me for this, but you know, Lady Gaga isn't all that different from Madonna, you know, and people are, you know, and the hip hop today isn't all that different than the hip hop from twenty years ago. And in when I turn to the jazz station, it's usually just the same tracks we we're playing. It's not just yeah, I mean, there's
0: a lot the of classical
1: be, music, yeah. and so everything is getting into this formula and right. feedback loop. Mm-hmm. We need something to break us out of this cycle. I'm not sure what it is, but it will come. yeah,
0: you know it feels like it's it's ready to it's got to be ready to bust through somehow. Uh, I know exactly what you mean and 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 hopefully that won't be AI because it's all kind of going there and it's all, you know, shifting to that, that, that place. And, and yeah, I mean, by the same token, it's like, <clears throat> I remember listening to radio stations where there were no formats and, 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 and they, they actually existed, you know, in my lifetime and, and, and just, <laughs> and hearing things, you know, back in the nineties and and thinking, wow, this is where this is going to go. This is where hip hop's going to go, or this is where you know, electronica is going to go and it kind of didn't, you know, and, and, and if I listen to it qualitatively and really try to be objective about its, its quality, I have to say, wow, it just really the quality hasn't really increased, you know? Um, I mean, maybe it has in some ways and it's just, there's just so much stuff coming at us that you have to sift through too much stuff now. And, you know, and that that could be true because of the delivery systems and having said that, you know, I just want to backtrack uh, here a bit, you know, and I hope I'm not breaking a flow, but we're going back to talking about, you know, the drum circles and, and the T cells, and and you know, <clears throat> speaking of delivery systems in longer form things, it reminds me of records where one entire side of an album was just one track, you know, or for 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 that matter, just having a drum circle, you know, or chanting or something that's repetitive like that, or, or, or any number of things that can affect you, you know, uh, in that way, I think was reflected in music. I mean, they, they had these long jams, anything, anything from, from, you know, the Grateful Dead jamming to live evil, you know, Miles yes. Davis. I mean, these things would go on for like a half an hour, you know, 20 minutes or whatever a, a side of a record was, you know, uh, 10 minutes. I, I don't know. Uh, and so these long form things happened and it was just jam and jam and, and you would just get, in, you know, entranced in this kind of thing, you know. And, and, and that's that just kind of went away, you know.
1: But if this is interesting. And I, and I tell people, there's an, the human organism craves the longer song. Mm. They say that makes no sense that all the hits are three minutes. I say, well, no, look at this. First of all. When the bands play live, they always make the songs longer, don't they? Because they can see the impact on the audience. The, of, you know, the performer sees it, and so generally the live concert, the song goes on for longer than it did on the record. And then if you look at the fan, and you know this is true, we, we've done it ourselves, there's so some song you like, it's like a three-minute song, comes to the end, what do you do? You go back and play it again. <laughs> because you don't want it to end after three minutes. You really right. don't
0: right and so the The music
1: and- industry has and, the whole, and why are songs three minutes well you know because it goes back to the 78 rpm albums they couldn't hold more than three minutes on a on a side so it was a, it was storage disc restrictions that led to the three-minute song right the music industry at certain point decided well this is we've been doing this it must be genius you know if we've been doing these three-minute <laughs> songs yeah you were like einstein
0: sure what they don't
1: realize is, is <laughs> is the bands, the the fans, everybody works around this constraint because they want to have that more immersive experience. And obviously someone like Miles doing Live Evil understood that. And a lot of those long tracks of the the Grateful Dead understood that at a a very high level. They knew that their fans didn't want a three-minute song. And so the music culture driven by the business is out of touch, I think, in a hundred ways with what, people really want in their musical experiences. Mm-hmm. People want music that that has a tremendous impact on their life. Mm-hmm. Many people identify their lifestyle by music. If you ask people, in fact, just think this, hip hop is, is a genre of music, but it's also a lifestyle. Country is a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Jazz is a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Rock, Punk rock, if you someone is a punk, you didn't know if that meant they were a musician or a fan. So p- people want to have music that has that dramatic impact on their life because that's, music can do that. Many people will go through their whole life, and the only time they'll really have some sort of altered mind state where they're taken at some higher level will be while listening to music. And so we need to take that seriously. I mean, you're, you're I believe, a practitioner of an extraordinary vocation. And, 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 people, and, and if they treat you just like an entertainer and I'm sure you're a great entertainer, I'm sure you know exactly how to entertain. But if they treat you as just an entertainer, they don't even begin to understand what you do when you go on the stage.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I've, I've never really given much uh, attention to developing an entertainment aspect of it, you know, but, but, but I point taken, you know, um, and, and I just wonder whether or not, um, all of those things that you that you had mentioned that are lifestyles that 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 you could you 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 could look at each genre as a lifestyle. Um, if 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 um, the diversity was also like I I often talk about the zeitgeist, the zeitgeist of the '60s versus the zeitgeist now that shapes the kind of music that that comes out as commentary, and and I just wonder if diversity was was uh more. More of the zeitgeist of that time as well, you know, and and try to look at all those kind of societal influences and um, and and compare it to now and 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 um and and just um I've, I've lost my train of thought on that one. I was well, going no, somewhere with it, but but yeah, but there. I guess
1: where <laughs> I come down is, I think the music scene is still very vibrant and exciting but it's it's not happening at the surface level anymore you have to dig deeper yeah and and i you know i devote two to three hours a day listening to new music Mm. you know that's because it's it's part of my so in the course of any given year i'll listen to more than a thousand newly released albums amazing and i found that i still hear good music but it's almost never from a major label it's almost always an indie project or a self-produced project or something I, I wouldn't hear on, I'm not going to hear on TV. um. And so they're young. And, and I worry that, that the people are doing creative work and they're getting lost. It's like finding a needle in a haystack. Exactly. I, I feel and, the and same I, way. And I don't know what the solution to that is. I know that I can only do so much. I mean, I try to highlight good music I hear, but it's, it, this is a large task. That,
0: yeah. I mean, I mean, it's that, just, just it's important a- to our culture. Yeah, it is important to our culture. And I think that, you know, with the democratization of it and the sort of just let, letting all the floodgates open and we can get music anywhere all the time, everywhere. And, you know, that's that's the sort of downside. We've got to dig so hard. Uh, and, and, you know, and those things, they may not stick either. And uh, it's it's just, they're, they're not sticky anymore. It's not, there's like a loss of permanence and... All that sort of thing as well it's just it was just so transient but but there's there's definitely no lack of great music out there absolutely you know um you're absolutely right i mean talent and there's just so much stuff out there i just wonder what kind of um you remember the kind of sociological impact that jazz had you know back oh, in the yeah, 50s no. and 60s i i just wonder if if you know it's if that's gonna ever sort of you know get to the point where where it sort of comes back and grabs people and, uh, you know, makes a comeback on another level because, you know, society was, we we were used to getting that stuff mainstream. I remember seeing that stuff like, you know, on the Steve Allen show, he had a TV show, you know, and he had Miles Davis on. It was one of the best performances I've ever seen. And this was prime time television. This wasn't something you had to search for, you know?
1: Absolutely. And it's interesting in the, Let's go back to the late 1950s and the counterculture in the United States. There were a group of people known as beatniks. Yeah. Right. And the I've I got this magazine here from life magazine, 1959 estimating that there are 10,000 beatniks in the United States. You know? <laughs> oh. And they're leaders of the counterculture. And one of the things um, that the beatniks did is they would listen to jazz. This was one of the, 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 the few things that they knew about the beatniks. They listened to jazz and it's very funny. The, there was a TV show back then uh, called Dobie
0: Gillis. I remember that.
1: And there was a character on there, Maynard G. Krebs, was a yeah. beatnik, yeah. played by the same guy who would later do Gilligan. And he was—he always shows bongos, and he'd have a beard, and he was sort of goofy, and this was the TV image of the beatnik. But this was the only time on network television that anyone said the word Delonious Monk, because occasionally – Maynard G. Krebs on the show would mention the name Thelonious Monk. So and so, but the counterculture was affiliated with a musical step. Now, this is what's very interesting: is you fast forward a decade later, and you have hippies. And the hippies are in many ways like the beatniks. Now they're listening to rock music too, mm-hmm. um, but they think they are they, the way they dress, their attitudes, the counterculture vibe is the same. But now this has gone mass market. Mm-hmm. There are millions of hippies and people practicing these lifestyles. So this, this is now. Could that happen again? Well, it absolutely could. It absolutely could. And, and I think my, my parents' generation. I mean, I was very young at the hippie thing. I, I was too young to be a hippie. I was, I was, I was still a, a kid. Mm-hmm. My parents' generation were shocked by this, but this was a huge social movement that changed everything. Mm-hmm eventually had tens of millions of people, maybe they didn't all wear the beads and the psychedelic clothes, but attitudinally they aligned themselves with this movement and it couldn't have happened without the music. Mm -hmm. Is that, I think that is going to happen again. Now the fact that I can't tell you the exact details of how doesn't mean it's not going to happen because it's happened. This is where I have an advantage as a music historian. This has happened for 5,000 years. Yeah. And generally, this is the interesting thing. How do you know that a new revolution in music is going to come? And I've studied it, and it's always when things look very bland and boring is exactly when the revolution is going to come. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to the early 50s. This is five years before Elvis. The, the, the record industry was just doing these pop albums, Mood music albums, they had these things called bachelor pad albums, where Mm -hmm. you go to your bachelor pad with the music in the background. (laughs) Novelty songs, like how much is that doggy in the window? right? Uh, You know, you had the high end of that was like Sinatra and whatever, but there was a bunch of this just sort of pop music. And it was very, and, and it was very formulaic. And the record industry said, well, we've now reached the nirvana. We know what people want. They want gentle pop music, sweet love songs, bachelor pad music. But, in fact, something was going to come and totally shake things up. It was rock and roll. And it had all the more impact because it came at a time when things were very static and there wasn't a lot of change in the music industry. We are in that static point right now. Something's going to come and will shake us out.
0: That's, that's a good point. That's a good point. I mean, I was uh, thinking more along the lines of, well, all of this chaos happened and, you know, the countercultural protest songs and all the sort of stuff that came out of this, that whole miasma that, that, that was happening in the sixties uh, during all of that. And, and, and we're, you know, we're now um, not only in the past two years, but especially right now at this very moment um, in another period that, that, you know, at, providing a kind of an equal amount of tension, if not, you know, a a sort of potential amount of chaos. So I was thinking that, that what you were going to say is that, that, that might be something that births this kind of disruptive thing that, that maybe catches on. But, but yeah, I mean, it could come from a, a, you know, just, just the banal sort of stagnation and boredom and just sort of, you know, something's got to give, you know, I, I get what you're saying.
1: You know, I remember in the late 1970s, I got a scholarship to go to Oxford, which was a great thing. Because I came from a working class family. We had no money. Mm-hmm. And this gave me to go to Oxford and study philosophy. And so I'm studying philosophy. And at night, I'm playing jazz. I'm gigging with all. I've got this is a great life I had there. I'm <laughs> studying philosophy during the day. And I'm doing jazz gigs at night. Yeah. And I remember there was this rumor that punks were going to come to Oxford. And one day I'm walking down the street and all of a sudden there are a bunch of these punks and they're like skinheads and the ones with the hairdo that looks like the rooster <laughs> yeah, Mohawks. And, and with the body piercings. And they're like about a hundred of them have gathered in this square in the town. And they're on one side. The other side is the police and the police has got their riot gear on. Oh, and, and the police are watching the punks the punks are walking, watching, and I'm walking to the middle of the square and I look at this and I look and I look and I says, I've got to get out of here.
0: <laughs> this thing is
1: going to blow. I don't know what's going on here, right. but this thing is going to blow up. But here's the interesting thing about that. Video. This punk was a mute. The punk movement was a music movement.
0: Yes. Basically exactly.
1: some, a change in the music. No, I'm not into riot. I mean, I'm the last person in the world to riot. I had, I had very little interest in the punk thing. I later gained some appreciation of the punk thing as a music historian. But back then, I was living in my esoteric jazz world. You know, if it didn't have a million chord changes, I didn't pay anything. I paid no attention to it. Right. And all of a sudden, I'm thrust into something like that. And I, and I just said, you know, I'm not into punk rock, but I have to respect the power yeah. of a music Yeah. That is shaking things up at this level. Yeah, I have to. Res- I have to respect that. Yeah, and that's and that's where I also say, as musicians and people in the music community, or me as a music writer, we have to take that responsibility seriously because you could set a a musician can set a, a, a light of torch that can burn down a city, or can give light to a whole world. And so I want to be among the people that brings light to the world. And doesn't burn things down. Amen. But people don't look at music in that regard, but I do. I do think music is one of those forces, uh, and it has lost none of its power. The fact that right now we don't see that kind of dramatic musical culture, uh, is, it's just an aberration because it will come back.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the human spirit warrants it, and, and, and it will happen as a result of, of the longing uh, the coming out of the human spirit. It's just, it's just part of our humanity. Yeah. It just is. So, um, so yeah, so be that, Ted, so be it. Uh, <laughs> amen to that. And um, that's very, very, very enlightening. And, and, and I think that, you know, really that's, that's, that's just a great thought uh, to, to close this wonderful conversation on. It really is. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful thing to think of it. It, you know, it's a sort of gives hope and, and I think it's an important thing. What, what, regardless of what people may or may not say, there's always pushback to, to, to almost everything. You know, people talk about hope, and I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm a fan. You know, I, I'll take it. Don't take hope away. You know, it's it. it just reminds me of of, um, you know, uh, Victor Frankl. You're talking about man's search for meaning. It's like you know, they can take all that stuff away except his attitude toward it. You know, and uh, and and you know. And 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 music may may arise out of one of those most dire circumstances again, some sort of disruptive thing, because we, as you were well saying before, you know, we're talking about music fulfilling a function versus just a an artistic expression. Hence the, the war chants, or hence the anthems, or hence these that and the other things. But 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 the disruptive force um, may also. Um, Give birth to to a to to a new dimension of 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 the art form of music as well. So, hopefully, you know that will happen. You know, and um, and and again, you know, I can't recommend your book highly enough. I'm I'm I've been diving into it, and I'm just voraciously. I'll be finishing it in the next couple of days, I'm sure. It's it's a great great book, and and I can't recommend it highly enough. uh a Subversive History of, of music, music, A Subversive History by Ted Gioia. And th- Ted, thank you so much for taking the time to be on this show. I can't thank you enough.
1: Well, thank you. This was this was fun. Uh, I've been a long-time admirer of yours. And so this hey, is a real treat for me. Oh. So thank you very much. And let's do
0: it again sometime. Thanks, Ted. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for another episode of Breakfast with Vinny.